on this episode of the Jeff Does Vegas podcast. It's such a congested space that if you can find something that hasn't been done yet in the true crime podcast space, like you're onto something. Uh, and so uh, when I started this job, I looked at what was out there and I was like, there are very few podcasts that cover organized crime. And there wasn't a single one about Las Vegas. In Spanish, its name means the Meadows. You might know it as the entertainment capital of the world, lost wages, or simply Sin City. Of course, I'm talking about fabulous Las Vegas, Nevada. On average, 42 million people visit Las Vegas every year, and I'm one of them. I love this city. The sights, the sounds, the shows, the people, the history. I want to share all of it with you. Taking you to the world-famous Vegas Strip and beyond, my name is Jeff, and this is the Jeff Does Vegas Podcast. Hey there, and welcome to episode number 71 of the Jeff Does Vegas podcast. Thanks so much for hopping on board this podcast track to what I like to think of as the best city in the world, fabulous Las Vegas, Nevada. Before we get into this episode of the podcast, I want to thank my guests from the last episode of the show, Fred and Seb, the hosts of the Unofficial Vegas podcast, a brand new Las Vegas podcast. The guys were kind enough to join me to talk about their show, including what inspired them to launch their own podcast, as well as share a few of their own Vegas picks, tips, and tricks. If you haven't had a chance to listen as of yet, jump into the archives wherever you get your podcasts and search out episode number 70, Vegas Unofficially, or head to the website at jeffdoesvegas.com. I also want to give a big shout out to Jake Gallen, the host of the Guest List podcast, for having me on his podcast to chat. Jake is a Vegas local who's doing a kick-ass job of sharing the stories of the people of Las Vegas, and I was honored to be invited on for a conversation. If you want to check it out for yourself, I'll post a link to the episode in the show notes. All right, here we go. On to the show. Anyone who's ever spent time in Las Vegas has probably heard someone say Vegas was better when it was run by the mob. But just how accurate is that statement? My guest for this episode decided to find out with his own podcast. Reed Redmond is the host of Mobbed Up, The Fight for Las Vegas, a new 11-part true crime podcast from the Las Vegas Review Journal produced in partnership with the Mob Museum. Mobbed Up takes a deep dive into the history of organized crime in Las Vegas and tells the story of the rise and fall of the mob with the help of the people who lived it. Reed had the chance to talk with law enforcement officials, journalists who covered the stories, lawyers, judges, historians, and even one of the most famous connected guys to grace the streets of Las Vegas, former Chicago Outfit and Hole in the Wall gang member Frank Culotta. Reed and I talked about the inspiration behind Mobbed Up, having the opportunity to work with the Mob Museum on this project, what it was like driving around for hours on end with a legit criminal, and much, much more. Please enjoy my conversation with Reed Redmond. Pretty new to Vegas. Uh, I've been here just past a year. 
Um, and that is exactly how new I am to working in a newsroom too. Um, I've worked for a couple other podcasts before this, uh, but um, I moved out to Vegas to join the Las Vegas Review Journal and to produce podcasts with them. So we kind of revamped. They had a few podcasts running before I got here. We sort of revamped them, expanded. Uh, now, hope I don't get this wrong, but I think we have six weekly podcasts um, and Mobbed Up is our, our second narrative project and kind of our, our biggest effort to date in that arena. Um, but going back to sort of how I got started in podcasting, I think it's it's one of those things that I, I <laughs> it was kind of by chance. Like there, when I was in undergrad, I was studying creative writing and I applied to MFA programs and thought I'd be, you know, writing poems in some way, shape or form professionally, hopefully, right. if anyone has ever done that. Uh, <laughs> but um, <laughs> my last semester of college and undergrad, there just happened to be a podcasting elective that fit my schedule. And I took it and I loved it. And I was like, there's no way this could be a job. Uh, and then after I graduated, I ended up deciding I didn't want to go and uh, do an MFA program in poetry and applied for a podcasting gig and, and uh, ended up working in podcasting. So you you were saying you came specifically to uh to Vegas to work for the Review Journal and and be their their podcasting guru kind of guy. Um mm-hmm. when you got to Las Vegas and I always kind of like to ask this question of the people that that have moved to Vegas. I'm assuming you probably had some preconceived notions about what the city was like. What were some of those those ideas in your head of what life in Las Vegas was going to be like versus maybe a year later, what it's actually like for you? I had not been to Vegas as an adult before I came here for my interview, actually. I, I was here when I was maybe four or five years old with my family. So my only memory of Las Vegas was... Uh, my brother and I had won plastic swords at Excalibur and annoyed the heck of, out of our parents with them. <laughs> <laughs> and that was really, that was all I, I knew about Las Vegas. Uh, and I applied for this job. I knew I wanted the job, but I was like, is it, is it worth moving there? What would it actually be like? Um, and I kind of just tried to come into it with a blank slate and just say, let's, let's give it a go and, and see how it goes. Uh, and I've actually, I've loved it. I was so pleasantly surprised moving here. Um, and I think that's that's something that a lot of people that move here say is that they're surprised by how much of a local community there is and how how great the city is outside of the Strip and outside of Fremont Street. Not that I don't enjoy going to the Strip or Fremont Street, but um, yeah, yeah, it's been kind of a, a surprising year, but uh, something I've definitely enjoyed. So what you're saying is you don't live in a hotel, you don't work on the strip, you're not. <laughs> no, I, I, I live at the top of Caesar's Palace. I, oh, of I course, that part yeah. <laughs> no, I actually. So I, I live. I live downtown, uh, and it's the cool thing about that is I couldn't afford to live downtown in like any other U.S. city. Um, I mean, there's probably a few, but I moved here from Chicago, and I definitely couldn't afford to live downtown in Chicago. So it's it's cool to live downtown here, and I'm right next to the Fremont Street Experience if I want that. Uh, but if I don't, I'm also right next to, you know, a whole bunch of cool restaurants and cafes and, and all those kinds of things. Very cool. And and you mentioned living in Chicago. Um, one of the fun things about jobs like this that that I I know I learned from my time in radio is you get to bounce around and live in a few different places. Uh, what are some of the other spots in the U.S. that you've you've lived? Have you always been more so out east? Have you ever been out west? It's been all Midwest. I, I grew up in Minnesota, uh, and then I went to college in Chicago at Loyola University of Chicago. Go Ramblers! 
and I spent about six years in Chicago, and then I then I moved out to Vegas. That's very cool. So, with the podcast, and we should we should plug it off the top here. The podcast is called Mobbed Up, and again, very very cool. Um, what made you decide to to work on a podcast about the mob and specifically, of course, the mob in Las Vegas. I mean, it's a fascinating story and a fascinating history. Is it just that something like this is a project like this has never really been undertaken before or, or sort of how did it come to be? That's a big part of it. Um, True crime podcasts are obviously huge right now. Mm -hmm. Uh, And with that, it's such a congested space that if you can find something that hasn't been done yet in the true crime podcast space, like you're onto something. Uh, and so uh, when I started this job, you know, I looked at what was out there and I was like, holy buckets, nobody's, there are very few podcasts that cover organized crime. And there wasn't a single one about Las Vegas. Um, and just knowing kind of bits and pieces of the city's history at that point, I was like, we got to find a way to tell this story. Um, and I pitched it and, and my bosses, you know, were excited about it and let me roll with it. Um, and that's kind of how it came about. Did you have it in your head before you got to Vegas and, and started doing this job? Was it always kind of in the back of your mind that this would be a a kind of a dream project or a a project that you wanted to work on? Oh yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I think I pitched it during my interview. Um, (laughs) and I thought it was fitting enough that, uh, when I was here for my interview, they had me staying, uh, downtown with a view of the mom museum. And I was like, Oh man, we gotta, there's some stories in there we can tap into. No kidding. No kidding. Um, I mean, speaking of the Mob Museum, I've had Jeff Schumacher from the Mob Museum on the show a couple of times, and I've spent, I don't even know how many hours going through the museum. It's one of my favorite attractions in Vegas. How did the partnership with the Mob Museum come about? I mean, this is an incredible resource for you to have access to for a project like this. Yeah, on some level, it it seemed crazy to undertake a big project like this about the mob without reaching out to the mob museum uh, because they are such an incredible resource in Las Vegas. And it is one of my favorite places here. I think when I moved here, I went to the mob museum before I went to the strip Uh, (laughs) and, you know, I I love wandering around in there. And so I was pretty soon after I started and pitched this project and we started figuring out, you know, how do we want to do this? that we approached them and say, said, hey, is there a way we can work together? Um, you know, we kind of have the resources to, to tell this story in a way that we think would be compelling. You guys have the experience and a lot of, you know, connections to, to folks that we could interview for it. Um, could, could work out well for both of us. And, and it has worked out well for both of us. And, and speaking of the people that you've had a chance to, to interview, I mean, you, you have talked to so many people in this project. I mean, countless law enforcement, lawyers, judges, historians, other other than Frank Culotta, because I want to talk about Frank Culotta kind of just all on his own. Other than Frank Culotta, who would you say is was one of the more interesting people that you had a chance to, to talk to and interview for this podcast? Ooh, uh, there were so many interesting interviews one that stands out is I was able to sit down with Harry Reid um, in his office at UNLV and talk for an hour just about uh, the mob. <laughs> and there's some irony to that is like, while that was happening, the impeachment hearings were underway. And I'm like, here I am talking to, uh, you know, one of Nevada's most prominent politicians about the seventies mm-hmm. <laughs> instead of what's happening in, in the world today. But um, that was just a fascinating interview. And that's in the 
sixth episode of the series is where his story is kind of told. Um, but I think a lot of people don't realize that before his career in Congress, he was a state gaming official. He was the chairman of the Nevada Gaming Commission, uh, which deals with casino licensing and things like that. And so he was going toe to toe with um, a lot of different folks who were connected to the mob, probably most famously Frank Rosenthal. Um, and so he just had this, this kind of wild story that's been touched on and there've been some articles written about it, but um, I hadn't heard it um, in his own words to the extent that I was able to actually talk with him about it. So that was awesome. If, if I'm remembering correctly, was that, was that episode, was that Mr. Clean? Yeah. Yeah. So he, uh, he was picked up. There were FBI wiretaps that were made public in 1979 uh, in which, uh, folks connected to the mob out of Kansas City were overheard referring to him as Mr. Clean or as Clean Face and claiming that Harry Reid was in their pocket. Um, and he ultimately was was cleared of any wrongdoing. And I think uh, he would say that um, they were just kind of, you know, mobsters like to, to talk and to, to make it, you know, they want to elevate their own importance in the eyes of their bosses. Uh, and so this this character, Joe Augusto, who was the entertainment director at the Tropicana with connections to the Kansas city mob family was, you know, if you ask Harry Reid, all bluster and, and just claiming that to, to look good in the eyes of his bosses. Was it Harry Reid that they tried to bribe? Am I remembering that story correctly? Or is that a different, a different episode? That's also him. Yeah. Yeah. He was on the Nevada gaming commission for about four years. And like, there are enough stories in that four years that you'd think it was two decades. Um, it's a completely different set of guys that were trying to bribe him. Uh, but people wanted to get a gaming device approved by the Nevada gaming commission and the gaming control board, um, to put into a casino. And it was like one of those, uh, games that, um, Jeff Silver, who used to be on the gaming control board, described it to me as like a Chuck E. Cheese coin pusher, uh-huh. um, where, you know, it looks like you're in a bunch of coins, but it's just, you know, you're not going to win anything Um, (laughs) and uh, probably doesn't belong in a casino, uh, but they wanted to get it passed. So they offered him, I believe it was $12,000 and Harry Reid turned around and went to the FBI and uh, participated in an FBI sting operation uh, where he, you know, the FBI was on the other side of the wall and he was playing it up and uh, actually got them to hand over the cash. And then the FBI came in and, and arrested the guys. Now, if I remember that story correctly, I, I, I think I laughed pretty hard at that one because was that the one where they were in the adjoining room and somebody had locked the door between the two adjoining rooms? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So Harry Reid actually, he realized the FBI was trying to come in to make the arrest, but the door was locked. So he had to find a way to, to casually saunter over and unlock the door and let him come in. He kept dropping uh, the, he kept dropping the code word, didn't he? It was the, that, and they, yeah, they what, yeah. nothing wasn't happening. It just wasn't <laughs> it happening. It was a for signal him. to send the FBI in and, uh, they weren't coming in. And then after they finally came in, there's this moment where uh, he went and, and tried to wring the guy's neck and said, you son of a bitch, you tried to bribe me. <laughs> and like, if you've ever heard Harry Reid talk, he's just this quiet, very like thoughtful guy. And so to picture him in that moment being mad enough to go and try to strangle a guy and scream at him, I it's wild. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely amazing. Again, just one of a million stories in this podcast that, that just so incredible. Um, Frank Collada, I've, I've got to talk when I, when I started listening to the podcast and I, I mean, Frank comes out right in the very first part, very first episode of the podcast. And I thought, Oh my God, he actually is 
you're you're tooling around with Frank Collada. First of all, I'm dropping a name that maybe some of my listeners might not be completely familiar with. So fill us in on exactly who Frank Collada is. Yeah, Frank Collada is a former associate of the Chicago outfit, which is the mob out of Chicago. Um, and sort of how the mob is structured is there are uh, made guys is kind of the, the term made famous in you know movies and TV shows. And those are guys who have pledged an oath to the mob and uh, committed a murder on behalf of the mob usually is how you, you know, prove yourself to the mob. Uh, but then beyond that, there is this huge network of, you know, tipsters and associates and people that commit crimes on behalf or sort of in conjunction with the mob. Uh, and Frank is one of those guys. He was an associate of the Chicago outfit, um, in sort of the mid 20th century. Uh, and he was a, a burglar is his specialty in Chicago. Um, and because he was, you know, doing these burglaries on mob turf, he would give a cut back to the Chicago outfit. Um, and he had a lot of friends in the Chicago outfit. Um, one of them being Tony Splatro. It's a pretty famous guy who ended up being the mob's uh, reputed enforcer in Las Vegas. And that's how he ended up coming out to Las Vegas and sort of working with the mob out here. And, and so the experience of spending time with a guy like Frank Culotta, I mean, I know he offers tours or he did offer tours for a long time where you could connect with him and he would take you around the city and, and it all wrapped up with, with pizza back at one of his pizza joints. Um, but I mean, for yourself, this is a totally different experience of, of getting in a car with this guy. And I mean, he, he took you around Vegas and showed you some pretty incredible things. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll give a spoiler here. So if anyone's about to go listen to the podcast and you don't want a spoiler, skip ahead a minute or so, but uh, he's killed people. <laughs> I, I got into a car with him knowing that he was a murderer, which is something I'd never done before in my life. <laughs> um, and one of the places that he took me to was uh, this residential home or this home in this residential neighborhood in Las Vegas where he had committed a murder. Um, and he told me how it happened while we were sitting outside of the home. Um, and that was surreal to say the least. Wow. And, and I mean, some of the other spots, he took you to places he showed you where various burglaries had been committed, various crimes had been committed and, and homes and residences belonging to other mob related figures. It's pretty incredible. Yeah. Yeah. It's um, and it was a weird way for me to being pretty new to Las Vegas uh, to learn about the geography of the city. Cause it's a city that, you know, transforms itself every five years seemingly. Um, and so you don't see a lot of this history in the buildings or anything like that. And so him driving me around and being like, yeah, I did burglaries over there um, or there. He used to own a pizza joint. Um, and I don't think this made it into the podcast, but it was a pizza joint called the upper crust. Um, and he showed it to me and it, now it's a cricket wireless. Um, <laughs> he took me to the spot where, uh, Lefty Rosenthal's car blew up. Um, and that was like a block from where I do my grocery shopping and I had no idea. So it was crazy to me to, to, you know, learn about this history of Las Vegas that you can't see anymore just going around on your own. And I mean, overall, what was, what was the experience like of that? I mean, I, I can't imagine th the, as you say, I mean, the amount of history and, and what he's able to show you, but at the same time, you've got it and you must have it in the back of your head at the same time that this guy at one time was a, was a bad dude. Yeah. Um, 
I think in the moment, the podcaster in me was like, I'm getting good tape. Like this is, <laughs> these are good stories and I am, you know, excited to see what we can do with this. Um, and I, I had obviously researched his story quite a bit before I ever met him. So it's not like any of the things he was telling me came as a surprise. Um, I knew the facts of what he had done. Mm-hmm. I think sort of the the most surreal thing was hearing it in his own words um, and sort of, I mean, these are stories he's, he's, most of them he's told before. And so he's used to telling them. So it was kind of weird for me where he's, he talks about murder, like you or I would talk about, you know, running an errand or taking out the trash. Um, and so to be in that space where, you know, he's just having a conversation with you, but your mind is just going crazy. Cause you're like, Oh my gosh, I'm in a car with a murderer. Um, <laughs> it was surreal. And he is, you know, he's a friendly guy. Um, I talked to him a lot and, you know, it, we had enjoyable conversations when we were off mic, you know, we just kind of shoot the breeze, whatever else. So that played into it as well, where yeah, there's, there's layers to the guy. <laughs> <laughs> Was there ever, I mean, this may sound like a silly question at this point. Cause I mean, he's so far removed now, I guess from that world was there ever any concern for safety? Not, I, I wasn't too concerned about my personal safety. Um, I'm not convinced that he shouldn't be more concerned uh, that, that maybe someone comes and and tries to, to knock him out. I mean, there are, the Chicago outfit is mostly wiped out, but as he told me, there are still probably a few young guys who would, you know, want to be, want to say like, I'm the guy who got Colada. And I think that's something he's probably just learned to live with and realize I, there's probably a long time and I don't want to put words in his mouth, but there's probably a long time where he figured he wouldn't live to be 81 and now he's 81. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I just figured, you know, the likelihood of something happening while I am with him in this two hour span, pretty slim chances. I liked my odds enough to go and do it. <laughs> right. uh, but he does have, you know, a guy that does security with him uh, when he does those tours or when he was with me uh, that, it's his driver slash security guard is what he told me. Mm-hmm. He told me he doesn't think he needs security. Um, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Did you have a tough time getting him to open up to you? Was there anything that he was like, no, this is completely off limits. I'm not going to talk about. He's a pretty open book. Um, one of my goals was because he has told a lot of these stories before. I wanted to kind of dig into them deeper than maybe he's done in other interviews. Um, and I think on that first day I met him when I was driving around with him, um, I don't know if we got there, uh, but then I uh, had another sort of marathon interview with him that probably went two and a half, three hours. Um, and a lot of this is what made it into the second episode of the series where he really, um, we got in deep into his childhood and uh, his relationship with his father, who um, was a getaway driver for some burglars um, and died in a car crash. Um, and kind of just this, the story of how he got to be a career criminal, um, that I think was, you know, something that I hadn't heard him talk about in that way, at least. Mm -hmm. It seemed like the only thing that he wasn't willing to discuss was, and this came up just listening to the ninth episode here was the fact that he found out that there was a hit out on him. And, and that was, that was when he made that decision to, to flip on on the family and 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 on the outfit and say okay that's it i'm going to help the feds now and it seemed like he wasn't really too willing to go too deep on that yeah yeah and i think that was genuinely just because it's really hard for him to think about that moment 
Um, and again, I don't speak for him, but my impression was that that was the case where he was sitting in jail and the FBI, uh, according to him, plays a wiretap that showed um, guys that were his friends and were, you know, people he worked with in the mob talking about um, how, you know, he needs to be taken out. And the line that he specifically said was, they said, you know, you got to take care of your dirty laundry, um, which, you know, was pretty easy to figure out what they meant when they said that. Uh, and I think that just really hit him and he, he was sitting in that jail cell, you know, being like, well, I was loyal to these guys for so long. They're not loyal to me right now. He obviously made the decision that he did. And, and, uh, and yeah, I don't think he's regretted it too much since then, but um, I think that was a tough moment for him. It really is such a, a fascinating story. And, and when you, you listen to this podcast and you hear all these names coming up, Frank Rosenthal and, and, and you're hearing Tony Spilatro and you're hearing Frank Collada and all these names and they're names that you might be sort of peripherally familiar with through pop culture and movies and TV shows, but then to, to hear a podcast like yours and hear how they're all sort of interconnected, it was really, really fascinating. Yeah, it was a lot of fun to dig into. And one of the things that I kind of made a point of after I started working on this was I had not seen the movie Casino uh, which is pretty, you know, closely, depending on who you ask, based on the lives of uh, Lefty Rosenthal and Tony Spilatro. Um, and Frank Collada actually has a little cameo in that, mm-hmm. uh, where he is uh, committing a murder that he actually committed in real life, which is another story. <laughs> Just amazed me the first time I ever heard that. <laughs> Jeff Schumacher for the Mob Museum had told me that, and I just was... I had to go back and watch that scene on YouTube. It was like, holy hell, he's actually, yeah. oh my God. Yeah, it was amazing. <laughs> to my knowledge, that's that's the only time that has ever been done. <laughs> um, but yeah, I guess I, I didn't want to, you know, lean on the movie Casino or any other sort of, you know, movie or TV show or something in pop culture as sort of a, a crutch and uh, just rip off a story that's already been told and fictionalized to some extent. Mm-hmm. Um and I wanted to get to the heart of what happened. Um, and to do that, you know, I tried to talk to as many people as I possibly could who were there when these things were going on. Um, not just Frank, but uh, folks who were involved on the law enforcement side and a prosecutor who was with the Organized Crime Strike Force in Las Vegas. And um, I was able to interview a couple journalists who were covering the mob back then. And I got a lot of audio from UNLV. They have some great archives of um, journalists and, and folks who were around back then. And and I really wanted the story to be largely presented from the perspective of people who um, were speaking to this, these stories because they were there. Having that in and being working for the Las Vegas Review Journal and having that in must have been just amazing to be able to contact those journalists who were covering the mob and organized crime at the time and just go, hey, I need some stories. I mean, they, some of the stories that they have must just be ridiculous. Yeah. Um, in fact, one of the journalists that I interviewed on the podcast is still an investigative reporter with the Review Journal, uh, Jeff Gehrman, great reporter. Um, and it was, it was, I didn't realize necessarily until I started digging into this project that one of my coworkers, you know, covered the mob every single day back in the 70s and 80s. Um, I think he started in around 1980. Um, and then another recently retired reporter, a longtime reporter and columnist for the Review Journal, Jane Ann Morrison, was able to come in and and tell some stories. And I've been in touch with her throughout the series, which has been kind of fun. Um, but yeah, yeah, it was definitely helpful to have these people around to, uh, to share what it was like to actually cover the mob and to kind of be a check for me. Cause I, I wasn't there. Um, 
you know, for them to listen back to these episodes and offer some feedback as to like, yeah, that's, that's what it felt like. That's kind of how the, those moments played out is, has been really helpful. How big was the, the whiteboard flow chart pin thing, strings all over connecting everything. I mean, it, how, how big was that wall in your apartment? <laughs> oh, it was nuts. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Starting out on this was, uh, there were kind of two moments in the process that were, uh, I would say the most intimidating, uh, if not overwhelming. And one was kind of that moment where I had a ton of ideas for where I wanted to take this podcast and had to pick a couple. Um, and the other one then was after I'd finished all the interviews and just had a mountain of audio and had to turn it into a podcast, got to turn it into a podcast. Mm -hmm. Um, but it helped having Frank Collada's story as sort of an anchor. Um, and as you're listening to the podcast, it sort of goes between, you know, the first few episodes are all kind of centered in his story and it's a pretty easy linear narrative to follow. Um, and then it breaks away from there. And so to have that jumping off point to go and tell the story of uh, Bugsy Siegel and the Flamingo, and then to come back into the you know 70s and 80s and, and get back to Frank's story and then go off to Kansas City and talk about an investigation based out of there and come back to Frank's story sort of made it a more manageable narrative um, and something that I think is is easier to follow as a listener if you have, you know, some of the same names and and. It's not faces, but names and voices throughout the podcast. So all in, all said and done, I mean, how many hours <laughs> can you even venture a guess at, at a number of how many hours you you spent working on this project? I don't know the number of hours, um, but we first started, uh, we sorted out our partnership with the Mom Museum, I want to say in October of 2019. Oh, wow. Holy uh, and cow. The podcast launched May 26th of 2020. Wow. Um, so I was working on it that entire time. We did another narrative podcast um, while that was going on. And we launched, you know, I think four new podcasts during that time, too. So I wasn't working only on Mobbed Up. Um, but throughout that entire time, I was, you know, planning the story and trying to to get these interviews. And, and one of the reasons that, you know, stretched on is that, you know, you got to work on everyone's schedules. If you're trying to get 20 different interviews, um, you got to find time and space and, and do them. And uh, so, yeah, I don't know how many hours it took, but it was, it was a long process. Um, and it was, you know, I appreciate the review journal giving me the time and the freedom uh, to do this story justice. And I think we were able to do that. Um, how many hours of audio did you end up with in the end? Cause I know, in my time, again, working radio and recording stuff and a little bit of TV, it was always following that sort of that 10 to one ratio. It's like for every 10 minutes you record, you use one minute. And I mean, you got a ton of audio in this. So I'm, I'm imagining maybe that's not quite the ratio, but what do you, what do you think in the end? How many hours? More than you hear on the podcast. That's for sure. <laughs> of course. Yeah. Uh, I haven't gone through and lined them up, lined up all the interviews back to back, but, uh, there are so many stories too that had to kind of hit the cutting room floor, um, which was a bummer, but maybe we'll be able to use them again someday. But yeah, I would say you hear on the podcast, maybe a quarter of, of the, the audio <laughs> that I was able to gather. Um, and, and I think it's a lot of the most compelling stuff too, you know, some of the stuff that we didn't end up using, you know, wasn't super exciting, but, uh, 
it, it was gathering kind of a mountain of audio and then going through and picking out the moments that that worked the best um, within the series and within the 11 episodes that we ended up keeping it limited to. I think it would be it, it would be very cool to hear some of that other audio in a, either a, some bonus episodes or a, a season two or, or something along those lines. Um because again, the stuff that made it in was just fascinating to listen to. And I know a lot of times the stuff that doesn't make it in can be equally as, or even more so fascinating. So it'd be very cool to hear some of that stuff. Yeah. And one of the examples of, of a story that I think is equally fascinating, but just didn't fit within the structure of the podcast is, uh, a former organized crime strike force prosecutor that I spoke to Stan Hunterton. Um, he, before he came to Las Vegas to work with the strike force here, he worked as a prosecutor with the organized crime strike force in Detroit and uh, actually prosecuted the uh, racketeering case involving the Aladdin uh, casino in Las Vegas, um, which had been mobbed up to use the title uh, by guys out of Detroit. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that was a story that I talked to him about and uh, just fascinated me, but it didn't fit into this series um, and it's not out of the realm of possibility that we would, you know, try to tell the story of the Aladdin in a potential season two or or um, something along those lines. I totally get what you're saying on that. I've been working on a third volume of my Sin City Stories side project, and uh, I've been working and doing some research into the history of the Flamingo. And part of that is the story of Billy Wilkerson, the guy who actually came up with the idea of the flamingo and he's a fascinating character. And the more I got into his background and what he worked on and his involvement in creating the Hollywood reporter and the uh, house committee on un-American activities and the blacklist and, and all of this kind of stuff, it, it was getting ridiculous to try to figure out what I wanted to cover and what I wanted to keep in and, and what I wanted to, to take out. So, so yeah, I, I completely get where you're at. Yeah. Yeah. I had that same experience with telling the story of Bugsy Siegel and the Flamingo got a little bit of sort of Billy Wilkerson story in there, but then another one that I really wish, uh, and maybe I would try to do more with it if I could go back, but uh, we didn't talk at all about Virginia Hill, who was Bugsy Siegel's girlfriend, who was, uh, a bag woman for the mob and had kind of the trust of all the top guys uh, in the mob out of New York um, or a lot of the top guys out of the mob. And uh, that's, that's a wild story in and of itself because, you know, women don't get to be in the mob. Usually it's a very misogynistic subculture. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I wish we had, uh, you know, another six episodes in the series that we could have dove into her story. And, and so hopefully that's something we get to dig into in the future too. Season two, my friend season two, we're planning it right here. Right two now. Through nine. <laughs> <laughs> um, what's next. I mean, you mentioned you work on, on, on all of the review journals, various podcasts, and they've got, you know, several weekly podcasts and what's next for you. As far as, do you have any more of these, these large long form narrative type podcasts on the horizon that you're working on? Anything you want to, you want to share? Nothing that uh, I can get into the specifics of at this point, but, you know, we have talked about a potential season two of Mobbed Up. We've thrown around some other ideas for for narrative podcasts. I think it's something that the Review Journal um, is committed to doing. And, um, you know, I think we're all excited. Mobbed Up has been um, a success. I, I think the paper looks at it as a success. I mean, it made it got up to number 57 on the U.S. charts, which was uh, wild for me to see and really exciting. Um, and so I think it's something that, 
the Review Journal is now looking at and, and determined to invest more in. So you can expect to see more narrative podcasts from the Review Journal. Um, and if you know anyone's interested in keeping up on Las Vegas, our weekly podcasts, I love you know working on them, but I also love listening to them every week. Um, you know, if you're interested in what the heck is going to happen with the Raiders this fall, uh, we have a that actually comes out three days a week podcast called Vegas Nation on the Raiders. Uh, we have a weekly podcast on the Golden Knights. We have a weekly podcast on entertainment uh, called Podcats that our host Johnny Katz uh, does. So we got a lot going on and a lot in the works for the future. Excellent. Well, Reed, again, thank you uh, for taking time to uh, to jump on. If people want to find you on uh, on social media, uh, how can they go about doing that? Uh, my handle on Twitter is at Red Reedmond. Uh, so I, I switched up the E's in my name. I'm actually locked out right now because of the whole hacking situation that just happened. Ah, uh, yes. Uh, so hope- <laughs> hopefully I'll I'll get my account back. They won't let me change my password. <laughs> uh, but eventually I'll be back on and I would love to connect with some of your, your listeners and, and talk about uh, Mobbed Up and Jeff Does Vegas. Excellent, Reed. Thank you again. I really appreciate you taking the time to jump on. Absolutely. Thank you. You can find Mobbed Up, The Fight for Las Vegas, wherever you get your podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. Or follow the link in the show notes at jeffdoesvegas.com. And that wraps up yet another episode of the podcast. If you've got feedback on this episode of the show or any other episode for that matter, or you've got suggestions and ideas for topics you'd like me to cover on the podcast, please feel free to reach out to me via Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Jeff Does Vegas. You can also email me directly at Jeff at Jeff Does In the meantime, thank you so much for checking out the show. Be sure to subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts so you'll know the moment new episodes are available. And don't forget to visit jeffdoesvegas.com for past episodes and show notes. My name is Jeff, and this has been episode number 71 of the Jeff Does Vegas podcast.